Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. We'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and wildest true crime cases in history, and we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking at Richard Kuklinski. Kuklinski. Yeah, that sounds right. Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. It's our favourite part of the podcast. No, no, we lo- How are you? <laughs> the best bit, the bit that everybody's actually here for. Um, you might be able to tell, I'm sorry listeners, um, I've got the leg. I'm sorry Helen, because you're in a room with me. I did check first. Oh, she did ask me and I was like, it's fine, my immunity is like, pow. Yeah, so in my head, I sound like Phoebe of Friends, you know, when she gets stick, sick and she's like, my sticky, sticky shoes. <laughs> but I think in reality, it's not quite there, is it? No. No, I'm sorry, I'm I'm bunged. She is bunged. You're making my nose feel full. I'm so sorry. I, I like, <laughs> I'm trying really hard to, like, not. It's fine. <laughs> I've got a tea with honey in it and it's, you know... We went through um, a particular coffee drive through We went through Starbucks coffee. We go every time we come here. And we're like, we'll have an Earl Grey, please. Don't put anything in it, though. She wants to add her own ingredient. I've got honey. <laughs> in a, I've, got a, I've got a squeezy honey in a little sandwich bag so it doesn't make my bag sticky. <laughs> in, but because I've not... This leads quite well into the story that okay. I want to tell you. Yeah, go on. Um, how are you? But, but just, I, I'm okay, yeah. but I know that you're eager to tell me something. Well, so we'll go with you first. What's okay. going on? So... Because I've not been feeling very well, and um, like today, also um, tiny, tiny violins. Today, okay. today is my today is my dead dad's birthday. Oh shit! Yeah, oh, and Danny. I've been, so I'm not just sick. I'm sad. Oh, Danny. Um, no, no, I'm actually like genuinely fine. Like it's been five years. Grief is a weird thing, and um, this one actually has been a bit more triggering. I think just because I'm pregnant and I miss him, and he's missing yep. out on all that joy. But like, and I was fine until I saw somebody on Facebook had tagged him in a picture. And um, like, I've spoken about it today with my friends and um, like who knew him. And um, But yeah, one of his friends tagged him in a picture and wished him a heavenly birthday. And I think because I wasn't expecting to see a picture of him, mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, I don't know, I cried. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I've been really seeking like comfort food because mm-hmm. I'm sick and I'm sad. Mm-hmm. And um my go-to, I've got two comfort food meals, right? One of them I haven't been able to have, but I'm going to have it for my dinner tonight, mm-hmm. um, is either fish fingers or corn chicken nuggets. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With rice mm-hmm. and gravy. What? Like bisto and sweet corn. Uh- how have I never known this about you, you freak? <laughs> because I knew you'd react like this. It's my hidden shame. Um, no, I know what you're here. Freak. But I'm a grown up now, so I will swap the sweet corn for peas. Okay. <laughs> to make it to make it nutritious. Mm-hmm. Um, and today I might even add some some broccoli uh, because you know vitamins. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's my like go to. Oh, I'm I'm baking. Can you do me fish fingers and gravy, please? And he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't support it. He's not supportive. Mm. My mum. I'm pretty sure my mum introduced me to this, and she denies it. But I think that's because she's a chef now, and she's ashamed. Yeah, I would yeah. be too. 
But yeah, my you know, my second go to comfort meal, okay, go, go. right, which is what I had, right, and I've I've been unable to eat finish it twice now since mm-hmm. I've got sick. So that's how you know I'm sick. Is scrambled eggs, right? Um, and then you you as you're just before they're finished scrambling, you add beans, like baked beans, mm-hmm. and so the juice kind of mixes with the eggs. And you kind of get eggy bean slop. And then you put that on like a nice bit of toast. And then you put cheese on it. But every time I look at this meal, I have a flashback to one of the worst moments of, of my life that I've witnessed. I don't know if I've ever told you about this. Oh, God. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> it was about 10 years ago. And I met my mum at Big Sainsbury's for a coffee. Because, you know, Big Sainsbury's mm-hmm. is a treat. Mm-hmm. Me and Helen love Big Sainsbury's. Oh, it is a treat. Like, we'll meet... One time we met during when we were allowed to distance outside, like one on one. We met in the car park of Big Sainsbury's. We did. Didn't we and had a coffee in yeah. the boot of our cars, like separately in different parking spaces. We did. Yeah. Did we also do a food shop? But we, we kind we of we sort of started together, and then we all both disappeared, and then we saw each other at the end, and I was yeah. like, "Show me your receipt," and it was like, "Oh god, me too." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because at Big Sainsbury's you have well to. good. Yeah, but I'd met my mum at Big Sainsbury's for. We went to the cafe. Had a had a catch up and a coffee, and um and then I heard a bit of a ruckus, <laughs> and uh, there was a little family there, um and the little girl had obviously been given too much food, and she'd had her chips and beans, <laughs> like absolute best cafeteria meal, mm-hmm. but um she'd eaten too much chips and beans and vomited the chips and beans oh no everywhere and I'm talking like it was like exorcist amount of vomit like it was so much I was like the poor thing she must have felt so ill because the sheer amount that came out of her (gasps) had just gone in so like she's eaten so much like pure vomit everywhere I can smell it and my mum was like don't and I was like I can't help it and I (laughs) I start going and the little girl's crying and um the dad is furious. The dad is like, look what you've done. Like, and he starts shouting at her and then the girl starts crying oh, even no. more. Yeah. And then he's like, go and clean yourself up. And then a guy walks past me and I'm going, what? And he starts going, what? Oh, no. <laughs> and my mum is like, what is wrong with all of you? Control yourselves. Um, and then, but the sad little crying girl who was just vomited everywhere to is, turns around to go to the toilet, slips on the sick and falls no, over. No. And then she's in the, the, chi- the chippy bean sick. Yeah, and it's horrible to watch. I want to cry for the little girl. It's not her fault. She was overfed. But like, and then her mum just sort of like took her away and the dad's there and the poor Sains- poor big Sainsbury's person comes over with their mop and bucket and the wet floor sign. And I'm like, oh, mum, can we go? <laughs> we had to go. So we finished our, we finished our, um, our drinks whilst we, we, instead we had a nice walk around big Sainsbury's and did a little shop. Oh. Yeah, and that was one of the, the like. Uh, genuinely, every time I look at my lovely eggy bean, <laughs> eggy bean slot, transported back I'm to trans- that moment because <laughs> it looks like a. Sick. Well, you can guarantee. I bet you that that comp- that memory comes up like after a few drinks at the pub, like at a family meal. Like she, she like the time I was sick. Yeah, she's. 
that's going to have traumatised her or it's become like a family joke or something. Like, So that's where we're at. That's me. That's up there. That's how I am. But I don't have any exciting stories to tell you other than, other than my dog's got the cone of shame on and the other one sounded like I was murdering her when I was clipping her toenails the other day. Like, it's just been just mundane everyday stuff. You need a mundane... A mundane week. Yeah. But you've not got a mundane story for no, us. No, I've not got a mundane story she's for you. She's been so excited. She's the whole, oh, for, since yesterday. She's like, I'm really, I'm really excited for this episode. It's because it's juicy. And then I was just having a bit of time to reflect in the shower today. And I was like, is this juicy, Helen? Because so many people died. And if you find that that's appealing and makes it more juicier, then you're fucking terrible. And I was like, no, no, Helen. Other Helen. There's more no, of the Helen. No, no, I just mean because it's like it is a really insane case, and it's juicy because so much shit happened. I'm excited because you're so ex- us excited to tell us this story. Yeah, I'm also a little bit frightened because you're excited to because you're so excited to tell us this story. Right. So I'm a bit like, oh god, what's happened? No, I know. Right, okay, yeah. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna set the scene. Cool. I'm going to try and do the accent as well because I, I can do the accent. But I just hope, just tell me if it's bad. I, what? Okay. Are you going to tell me what accent it is first or do I have to guess? No, I'm just going to dive straight because into it. Because you're so good at it. Okay. Okay. This is right. We're, um, all in, we're all in this together, listeners, and I'm very excited. I really hope that, um, <laughs> I, hope, I hope the accent is bad. I hope the accent is bad. <laughs> Shut up. I'm so good at this. <laughs> okay. Let's set the scene. It's 1986, and in the mean streets of Jersey City, a special agent is working undercover as a mafia-connected career criminal. Wait, what? Okay, it's 1986, and in the mean streets of Jersey City, a special agent is working undercover in the mafia. Right. The agent has been undercover for a whole year using informants to wheedle his way closer and closer to his target... And he's just about to jump on one of the most prolific killers of all time. The target of the investigation is the elusive Iceman. The man who can kill a hundred different ways and who disposes of bodies in some of the most gruesome fashions imaginable. Over his lifetime, the Iceman had killed over 200 people and always collected his paycheck he was a mafia enforcer of horrific proportions and he felt nothing until everything he loved was taken away from him. That might be one of the highest body counts it that is. we've had so far. I mean, it is. It is the highest it's body defo. count that we've had so far. He doesn't even know how many people he's killed. My God. He, he, they asked him over 100, yeah, yeah. over 200. And they were like, over 200. He was like, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely not under 200. And uh, he was asked, would you call yourself an assassin? Assassin? <laughs> Sounds so exotic. No, I was just a murderer. Oh, okay. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Okay, then. Okay. Right, right, down. <laughs> <laughs> Crosses out assassin. Murderer. <laughs> so let's go back to the start. So Richard Kuklinski was born on the 11th of April, 1935 to Polish native Stanislaw or Stanley Stanley Kuklinski and second generation Dublin native Anna McNally. He was the second of four children and grew up in an apartment on 4th in New Jersey which was said to be a fairly rough neighbourhood 
Richard's early life was tumultuous at best. He was bullied by the neighbourhood kids for being shy and thin. They used to call him Skinny. Hey, Skinny. And to top it off, his father was a real nasty man. He was violent and abusive. He was an alcoholic. He would apparently leave for long stretches of time only to come back and beat his children and wife. Devastatingly, Stanley's abuse would soon end one of his own children's lives. When Richard was just five years old, Stanley beat his firstborn son, Florian, to death. Fuck. He was eight years old. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Wow, that shit, that's gone, that's going to stay with you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Bloody hell. Yep. Okay. And Stanley got away with it. So when the police came to investigate, they said that he just fell down the stairs. No. Mm-hmm. But Richard's father wasn't the only abusive one in the household. His mother would also beat the kids. And um, Richard claimed that she would beat him so hard with broom handles that they would actually break on his body. Oh, my God. Okay, so he's basically being raised in a in a place of fear. Like, yeah. you, you, you're never going to know what what's coming well definitely not a seemingly loving family no they're a family that he hasn't learnt to love no he's just always being hurt and he's lost his brother from the hands of his dad so yeah Anna was also violent towards her estranged husband Stanley even once trying to kill him with a kitchen knife probably because he murdered her child maybe Mm, perhaps but even though she was violent she had her reasons because she was a strict Catholic. Apparently, they believed that stern discipline and a strict religious upbringing would make her children perfect. Ah, well, there's, there's, there's strict discipline, isn't there? And then there's breaking broom handles on your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, okay. Yep. She even made Richard become an altar boy, but what was supposed to be a safe haven for him turned out to be just the same as what he was forced to go through at home. Uh, he acted out and would be, in turn, beaten by the nuns for misbehaving. Oh, okay, beaten by the nuns. You, yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry, you hear, you hear Catholic Church, you hear things aren't, like, uh, he's had to endure things and everyone's mind went to the same place there, didn't they? Yeah. Okay. Um, and like we've seen before, Richard started to reenact this violence himself. And through frustration, he started to lure stray cats and dogs before cruelly torturing them and killing them. Why is it always the animals? I know, leave the dogs alone. And the cats. Obviously, and the people. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Richard's violent upbringing had a huge, huge effect on him and his siblings. And this horrible, and I mean it, this horrible anecdote really illustrates that. In 1970... One of Richard's brothers, Joseph, was convicted of raping a 12-year-old girl and then horrifically murdering her and her dog by throwing them both off the top of a five-storey building. Wow. So that's violent. This is the environment he grew up in and these were the people that were closest to him. That is what he lived with. When Richard was asked what he thought about his brother's crimes, he simply said, we come from the same father. Oh, that's concerning. Yeah. 
1948, at the age of 13, with his father out of the picture, Richard, his two siblings and his mother moved to a new neighbourhood. His mum Anna was working long hours at a meatpacking factory and after months of torturing stray animals, Richard was now confident enough to turn his anger to humans. In this new neighbourhood, there was a gang called the Project Boys. Now, the Project Boys took an immediate dislike to Richard, calling him racist names on the street and even grabbing him and beating him up whenever they came across him. It was at this point that 13-year-old Richard lost his shit. This is where the fire, you could say, was ignited. Hell-bent on revenge, Richard tracked down the leader of the gang, Charlie Lane, and beat him to death with a wooden dowel. And after killing him, he cut off his fingers, bashed out his teeth so he couldn't be identified. Then he stole a car, drove it two hours to South Jersey, where he dumped Charlie's body off a bridge. He then went and found the rest of the gang beat them all up one by one with an iron rod. And he was 13. What did we just... What just happened? I know. My niece is 13. She couldn't even carve a pumpkin at Halloween. And he's chopping off fingers. After they're dead. After they're dead. And pulling out their teeth. And driving cars. And dropping bodies off bridges. So that he couldn't be identified. Like, that's detailed. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. In a later interview, he said that this was when he learned that it was better to give than to receive. I'm I'm shook. I don't know what to say. Like, none of my words will come out because there's so so many problems with that. I know. Oh, my God. This is just the beginning, Danny. This is just the beginning. This is so problematic. Yep. Goodness me. Sorry, look, you can tell I've just got all nasally then. I know. I've, I'm even more bugged now. Danny is cl- clutching her arms by her hands. She seems so tense. Are you oh okay? God, I am tense. <laughs> wow, continue. Okay. I don't know. Do I want this? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, please. Continue. With this newfound confidence, Richard started a gang of his own, which he named the Coming Up Roses. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not very... Um, intimidating is it (laughs) sounds like a barbershop gang or something doesn't it the barbershop quartet oh (laughs) coming up roses yeah they're gonna be like be cool boys (laughs) together the gang they would rob shops and mug people and just be all around terrible and as richard got into his late teams he became well a well-known figure in his neighborhood um as he was the leader of the gang and a man with a short fuse, and now a man with money. From all the stealing and stuff. But is he even a man? Well, he's, a, he's, he's not a, even a man. A teenager, and he barely, yeah. barely a man. Barely a man. He was so well known, he caught the attention of Jersey crime family. Now, ap- apologies, because I'm trying to pronounce it as very hard. The De Cavalcantes. Diva. I'm going to try and do it. Diva. De Cavalcantes. De Cavalcantes. De, Cav- de Cavalcantes. Well done, friend. De, Cavacan- de Cavalcantes. Did and producer Alex not no, give No, she you didn't a- even phoneticize oh. it for me, but it's fine because it actually, it's just because there's so many letters in one word. It's She's just left you out in the cold. I know. It's okay. And soon, so he's joined, he's, he's caught the attention of the De Cavalcantes and soon the coming up roses were working for the family, delivering mob hits and hijackings. 
the the gang name really it's it's all I I have West Side Story in my head like that's all in they're they're pirouetting they're snapping their fingers like they're doing things in sync and I know that it's not that's horribly inappropriate because they're not doing that they're just going around being terrible but I can't separate the two now why are they called the coming up roses I don't know I don't know who came up with that name but maybe it's just to throw people off a bit I don't know yeah, you're going to get a visit from the Coming Up Roses. Oh, well, that okay. delightful. <laughs> Great. By the 1950s, Richard Kuklinski had made a name for himself in Jersey City. He was working for the DeCavalcanti crime family and uh, he was known as a cold-blooded killer. He was so cold-blooded that when a member of the Tecavalcanti Mafia ordered him to kill the other two members of the Coming Up Roses, as they apparently could no longer be trusted, Richard stalked them and killed them both when they least expected it. Ooh, so he didn't even do the whole, like, boys, your, your time is over. Nah. In interviews, I've been watching him in his interviews, he just, he's so, like, he just doesn't care. He's when, so, what time period is this? This is in the 50s. But there's, there's videos. No, no, no. Oh, okay. So this is him in the prison, like in the nineties or something, oh. whenever it was. was Ooh, it the I want to watch that. You need to watch it. It's really cool. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go watch that after this. Really, it's on Sky. Um, Richard continued to work for the De Cavalcantes in the sixties, killing anyone the mob family told him to kill. He would dump bodies in junkyards, woods, and caves, not caring what he was doing one bit. He, he, he didn't. I've just. There's nothing behind his eyes. He's just, he's, it's almost like he's just taking the bins out. That's how he's sort of, he's so desensitised to what he's doing. That's mad. I know. One time he was ordered to kill a car salesman. He went to the car lot. He asked to test drive a car. But once he was in the car, he knocked the salesman out. He drove the victim to a remote location, tied the salesman to a tree. He was under clear instructions to cause the salesman as much pain as possible before killing him. So he used a hatchet and a shovel to smash the victim's ankles and knees in. <sighs> then he chopped off the salesman's fingers one by one. <sighs> and then he thought that wasn't extreme enough, so he slowly cut off the man's head. Oh, yeah. Slowly. Core. Ah, okay. Richard then disposed of the body, but not the head. He drove the head back to the family to present it to them, endearing him to the organised crime community forever. <laughs> we love you now, Richard. You delivered a head. Exactly. Things are weird in the world, <laughs> aren't they? My goodness. However, the honeymoon stage of his new job wasn't going to last forever. By the early 60s, Richard had killed at least 65 men and was known as the best of the best. He's about, uh, so he was born in, when was it? Right, let me just look. His date of birth was uh, 1935. It's now 1960. He's only 25. What the fuck? And he's killed just over 80 people already. So Shit and dicks. That's yeah. just what, it's my, this is mind blowing, this lad. An interesting thought though. Okay, I've been thinking about this. So he was thought of as a hitman, right? And generally, hitmen are glamorised and quite cool. You think of hitmen, like, oh yeah, they're organised, they know what they're doing, they're very strategic, they're going to go and kill people. And, and it's sort of like almost well-respected. But 
like clean and methodical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he still killed people. But when you think of a serial killer, you conjure up the image of a weirdo like Dharma and someone that's got some real issues and they're feeding these firsts and these fantasies. But they're actually no different because they're still killing people. So people are still dying at the hands of them. And he's killing, he's only, what, 25 and he's killed 65 men already. Yeah, like, and it's not because, so I guess, I, I guess my brain was sort of the difference between, say, like, Dharma and Kuklinski is that Kuklinski is being told who to kill. Yeah. But they're both enjoying it. Yeah, but I mean in the sense that, like, when you call someone a hitman... Yeah. You think that's almost like it's all right because he's a hitman. Like John like, Wick. Yeah, you're like, oh, it's cool, he's a hitman, but he's still a murderer. So it's like... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's always... There's, there just seems to be a bit more acceptance Even like, for a hitman. There is the game, Hitman. Hit, yeah. You know, the hit he's game cool. series, Hitman. Yeah, but like you wouldn't have a game serial killer, man. No, but that's what I mean. There's a whole yeah. There's a whole thing built around how like hitmen being cool, but they're still murdering people. Whereas serial killers go out killing people, they got such a bad rep. I mean, none of it's fine, but it's just I don't know why there's a glamorization around hitmen. That's very interesting, Helen. I've never really sort of pondered that before, but you've, you're very you're very right. And now I'm questioning myself and, and now I feel bad for the time that I did try and play Hitman I didn't get very far because it's too stressful it's really hard yeah <laughs> anyway 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 so the honeymoon period's over the jobs weren't coming in as fast as they used to so he had to he started gambling away his earnings which never it's never never really ends well does it so then in a twist of fate Richard's boss was killed by a rival mob forcing Richard to take a break from organised crime. So so we got a job. He started working for a trucking company where Richard found love. Is he even capable of love? He is. Is he? To be fair. Okay. Whilst working as a trucker, he met 25-year-old girl called Barbara. Barbara Pedrisi. Pedrisi. Barbara Pedrisi. They married almost immediately and they soon had two daughters... Merrick and Kristen, and one son, Dwayne. Now, Richard was actually married before Barbara to a woman called Linda, who was nine years his senior. They had two children together, Richard Jr. and David, but their marriage ended in divorce, and there wasn't there isn't much known about Linda, um, which is quite understandable considering his um, background. But anyway, so he's he's met Barbara. And she says that he was a half-and-half husband. Barbara described him as good Richie and bad Richie. Good Richie was hard-working. He was a provider. He was very affectionate. He was a loving husband who loved spending time with his family, staying up all night to look after his wife or children whenever they were sick. But good Richie was only half of the picture because bad Richie was a horrible reflection of his own upbringing this version of Richard was abusive, violent and prone to fits of enormous rage. He was manipulative and possessive. He even stabbed Barbara one evening after she expressed to him that she wanted a divorce. My goodness. He never liked her going out and seeing friends. It's not going to change her mind though, is no. it? Stabbing her. No, I know. But yeah, he was super possess- like possessive and controlling and sorry, I'm just stretching whilst I'm doing this. I don't, you're just looking at my arms like, 
What are your arms doing? I was, I don't know what I was. It didn't strike me as weird though. Oh, like, <laughs> you look uh, fascinated by my arms. Yeah, outside. I was just like, uh. you're spreading them like a bird. <laughs> yeah, so she wanted to go out. He'd always go with her. He didn't like her going out on her own. Oh, but he was equally like, just you know, provided, gave them a lovely life. But it, that doesn't. I mean, that doesn't. Uh. No, but anyway. It was during the early years of this family that, that Richard was forging a new career. So in the mid-60s, he found work in Manhattan in a film lab, but this was no snappy snaps. In this lab, they made hundreds of bootleg copies of Disney films to sell on the black market. <laughs> <laughs> okay, led. I know. But then he realised he could make more money making bootleg copies of porn movies. I was waiting for this. I was like, yeah, there's going to be porn somewhere in it. So we did that instead. Okay. It was through pirating porn that Richard soon met Roy DeMeo, a crime soldier from the Gambino family. Now, this was the start of a long relationship with the Gambino crime family, but it wasn't one that started happily. Richard actually owed the Gambino mafia um, Richard actually owed the Gambino mafia money from the porn he was pirating. Roy had tracked Richard down to beat the shit out of him, which he did, but Roy soon realised who he was dealing with. So he got beat up. And then he oh. was like, fuck, I just beat up this guy, the Iceman. I just beat up the Iceman shit. Yeah, so Roy decided to put Richard's reputation to the test. Roy wanted Richard to join the fray as an enforcer, but first he had to prove himself... Richard called it an audition. So one evening, the two went out on a drive together in town. Driving along, Roy spotted a man walking his dog and he told Richard to get out of the car and kill him. So the car stopped. Richard didn't hesitate. He got out of the car, walked past the man and then shot him in the back. I shot him in the back of the head. Just an innocent guy walking, down, walking his dog down the street. Right. He wanted to know that he... Wouldn't, head, wouldn't hesitate and he would do as he's told. Would you kill this guy? And he was like, uh, so it was like, well, why? And he was like, well, I want to know that if I had to ask you to do something, that you'd do it. So he just got out of the car and he did it. Poor man. I know. Poor dog. But also, I find it quite surprising that, like, someone of Richard's, I guess, prowess, for want of a better phrase, like, he's becoming very well known for being good at what he does that he is happy to to take, like, to not be a leader. Yeah, but he's earning so much money by just killing people. Like, he would he'd get, he's like... He's enjoying killing people. He, do, he Yeah, he just doesn't give a shit. Like, he'll just go and do it. Like, it's it, honestly, his attitude towards killing people is just like, Danny, do you mind putting the kettle on? Like, that's just how blasé he doesn't care about it. My heart stopped for a minute then, because I was like, what kettle? <laughs> But yes, no, good example. It's, it's, yes. it's the same. But he'll get 20 grand for killing someone. But he just finds it so easy. He doesn't feel anything. He just go do it. I don't know if he enjoys it. Definitely has or has or had rage towards people that he didn't like. He would just kill him. So it's giving him an outlet. Yeah. Well. He's just like, okay. From that point on, Richard Kuklinski was Roy DeMeo's favourite enforcer killing whoever the Gambino family wanted dead. 
Almost unbelievably, his family had no idea Richard was anything other than a white-collar worker. So they, his family, his wife, they still believed that he was a, a successful businessman. Barbara, understandably, not wanting to rock the boat in any way because of his anger and his rage, never questioned him when large amounts of money just showed up or when he would just leave in the middle of the night. In later interviews, she maintained that a don't ask questions attitude was essential to survive in that household. That sounds plausible, doesn't it? Yeah. In reality, he was killing left, right and centre in some really horrific ways. He was so good at living this double life that he was known as the friendliest man in the neighbourhood, using the money from his murders to host lavish barbecues and garden get-togethers for his neighbours. No way! Yeah. A little bit like, um, what's his face? Clown guy. John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. Taking all his chicken, chicken, to the, chicken. Bringing all the chicken to his yard. <laughs> yeah. Like. But in reality, he was killing left, right and centre in some really horrific ways. This is wild. Because also, like, he's had such a detached life. Like, you know, he had such a difficult childhood and stuff. I'm surprised that he's able to function in such a way to be that convincing. I know. Like, that's really shocking to me. Like, you'd think, really, he, sh- he should be like a like a Richard Ramirez type. Like, you know, a bit weird and socially I, backwards. Like I, I can... The only way that I can um, sort of somewhat imagine how it is is because he's just, he's so honest. You've got to watch his interviews. He just does not give a fuck. Like he doesn't see killing as like a bit a, a deal at all. So I can imagine right him going out to work and doing the killing is sort of on the same. I might be wrong, but like someone going out and getting secret Botox from their husband. <laughs> My stepsister yeah. does it. She goes out and get Botox. It's not a big deal, but she won't tell it. She won't tell Ed, her husband. So he doesn't need to know. But it's not. It's not a big deal, really, is it? At the end of the day, yeah. so it's him. And he's like he's doing a bit of murder, and it's not a big deal. She I don't need to know. But it's not like he's not getting sexual pleasure from it. He's not no. getting. He's just doing it because he can. Yeah, and he's good, and at, he's it. good at it. Like he, he has. He doesn't think it's a big deal. He has no emotional sort of. He doesn't feel anything from it. No remorse. Nothing. So it's not like it's like this huge big deal that you should be really guilty. Oh my god, it's such a bad thing. Can't tell anyone. Oh, pressure. He's like, I'm just gonna do some murders, come home, have a barbecue. All good. Yeah, that's frightening, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Isn't that frightening? Okay. Richard went on to work for the Gambino family for years, racking up an insane amount of murders. He used a vast number of methods to keep the police guessing. He'd kill with guns, knives, explosives, fire asphyxiation and his personal favourite poison oh yeah and this is a fun little nugget of fact fact of nugget nugget fact (laughs) what is it Danny nugget of knowledge I don't I don't know oh that's just a little cool part of the story so he learned about poison from a man called well they like to call Mr Softy and he was an ex-vet turned ice cream van man and he drove a Mr Softy van. But So they called him Mr Softy. But Mr Softy wasn't a softy. He was fucking deadly, man. He taught him all about poison and all that and they became friends. And Kuklinski actually said, he taught me a lot, but he was extremely crazy. And he'd go to these neighbourhoods 
and he'd sell ice cream to the kids and then maybe kill one of the fathers. What? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. It's nothing pure in the world. No. The ice cream man. He'd just go around, sell ice cream to the kids, pop off a parent maybe. Murdering a father. Yeah, murdering your father. <laughs> and to be fair, at least he was. I was really worried. He'd be like, you know, I'll slip some rice in and one no. of the cones every now and again. <laughs> no, but um, so even though Richard was ice cold and he didn't care and he had no remorse, he did have a, a moral code, which was he didn't kill children or women. And Richard claimed that Mister Softy asked him to kill his wife and young son for him, which Kuklinski declined. So when Mr. Softy began to talk about poisoning an entire reservoir just to kill one family, Kuklinski shot him. I mean, thanks. Yeah. So he killed his mate because he was going to kill him, um, um, oh, his wife and his kid. Yeah. By, by poisoning an entire reservoir. Excessive. In hoping that they die. But I mean, also, like, so he, that's like an anti-hero move. Yeah. But, like, this is all a lot, isn't it? Yeah. So bodies of his victims were tossed into oil drums, dumped into rivers. They were shoved into freezers before he figured out what he wanted to do with them. In fact, he did this so often that he gained, that's where the nickname Iceman came from. Because he put people in freezers and also because he had like, no. He was He'll just, put you on ice. He'll put you on ice. But he, obviously because he also had no remorse. He was just like ice cold. Oh but um, goodness. It, is also, it also helped because when you freeze a body, if you then like, dump it two years later... They can't tell when the time of death was. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so they were saying that if they found a body on a hot day that had ice inside of it still, they were like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. The ice so man. you can't really pinpoint. You can tell from, well, I guess you probably couldn't back then, but now you can tell if a body has been frozen from the blood. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. They probably didn't have the technology to run those tests back then, though. Probably not. No. I'm sorry. I'm aware that as the podcast goes on, I'm sounding iller and iller. I think you sound quite cute, really. Thank you. So he would leave bodies of his victims in cars and then drive... Hang on. So this this is probably the worst one. So he would leave bodies of his victims in cars and then drive the car to a junkyard to be crushed. Union boss Jimmy Hoffer somehow offended the Gambino crime family. So, as part of a four-man kidnap team, Richard killed him in the back of the car with a hunting knife and then drove the car to a junkyard where the car and Jimmy's body was compacted into a cube and that cube was sold as scrap metal along with hundreds of other compacted cars and then shipped to Japan to be used to make new cars. And I'm just envisioning you buying your lovely new car made from recycled cars finding a finger in the glove compartment yeah. just be like oh no there's why is there part of a face in the yeah in my, in my there's a coccyx in the exhaust yeah he would also dismember his victims leaving body parts in different places all around town to make sure that he or his crime family bosses would never get caught and um grossly he used to dismember bodies in a club called the gemini lounge and um, so imagine going for a drink and someone that sat next to you had been chopping up bodies. like Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? Downstairs in the basement. 
You never know what's going on. I'd make sure my bar tab was paid for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you go, like, I guess also these people, there'll be all different kinds of people. Some of them will be criminals. Some of them will be people that have just crossed these the, the, the mob bosses by accident. Mm-hmm. There'll be, some of them will have vexed Richard. Yeah. Like... He said that if someone looked at him wrong in the street, he'd kill him as well. Like, what? This is the kind of person he is. Yeah, that's fucking mad. Uh, once he said that he obviously he'd use those different weapons, and one of his favourite ones, where he was trying out his crossbow, and he was testing it out, and he was basically sitting in his car, and he wanted to test out his new crossbow, called over a man, and pretending to ask him for directions, and just shot him with a crossbow. And when he was asked why he did it, he was just went, just want to see if it worked. Whoa. And obviously, because he doesn't give a shit, like, there'll be no way to tell who that was. Yeah. God. I know. So, it's, it is stomach-turning to think about the dismembering, but it didn't bother him at all. Apparently, he used to just do it and eat pizza at the same time. Just didn't give a shit. He didn't love the smell, though. He used to put cologne up his nose so that it would smell more like cologne. Um, he'd use deodorant and sometimes he'd just chuck cologne up the walls to, oh, okay. to get rid of the smell. That's I, weird. Yeah. I mean, he could light an incense stick because I did that the other day when my kitchen smelled like fish. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Walked in my house I walked in like, Helen's house and gagged. <laughs> I did fish the night before. Uh, so I, I, I lit incense there later on that day and it, it worked. worked. Yeah. So if you think all of that is horrendous, he had one particular method that was even more gruesome than that. At some point, perhaps out of boredom, Richard got the idea to tie up his victims and whilst they were still alive, leave them in caves in the woods so he could see how long it would take for rats to eat them alive. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. So he was so interested in this idea, he would even set up a camcorder and a light to film it from start to finish so the rats would emerge from the cave and poke around a little bit till they found the struggling victim they'd bite the person starting and then eat 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 them starting with their eyes their eyes yeah they're soft aren't they super soft he'd film their slow agonising death and show them off to his mob bosses whoa whoa they'd be like hey this is some fucked up shit Oh, that really makes me cringe because that's a fucking terrible, what a terrible way to go. By the early 1980s, Richard's boss, Roy, got a bit messy. So he started leaving behind a little bit more evidence and didn't seem to have his act together. And he'd become so messy, in fact, that the FBI were poking around and they're they're on him. And Richard didn't like this. So Richard, even though he was violent towards Barbara, loved his family and he didn't want Roy's mess to follow him. So Richard went on a drive with Roy to talk through the situation. And as you probably guessed, Roy was never seen alive again. Of course. Yeah. So for the first time in over 15 years, Richard was now an independent killer. He was trafficking drugs, porn, guns and money laundering, as well as keeping his first occupation as a contract killer, making hits all over the world. That's where it sounds glamorous, isn't it? A hitman yeah, goes all around the world, flies on private jets or like business class. That's how the movies make it seem. He even had his own crew. Gary Smith, Barbara Deppner, bit confusing because his wife's also called Barbara, 
Daniel Deppner and Percy House. With Richard now as his own boss, he killed whenever he saw fit, and he saw fit quite often. In January 1980, he killed George Maliband during a meeting to buy porn tapes. It's unknown whether the deal went south or whether Richard just saw red, but a week after the meeting, George was found in a 55-gallon drum. The tendons of his legs were cut in order for him to fit him in there. He was like, the guy was a big guy. And there was one leg I just couldn't get in, so I cut it off. Okay. It just seemed like it was an inconvenience at how you can't get all your, your recycling in the recycling bin one week. I'm just going to cut it off. So I couldn't get him in, so I had to cut a leg off. That's how it is. He killed, he, he killed 51-year-old pharmacist Paul Hoffman after meeting him to set up a drug trafficking deal. Richard tried to shoot Paul after the deal fell through, but when the gun jammed, he just bludgeoned him to death with a tyre iron. In March 1980, he killed NYPD officer called Peter Calabro when Richard discovered that he was under investigation for selling confidential information to the Gambino family. Louis Masgay was killed after meeting Richard to purchase a truckload of blank video cassette recorder tapes. Louis had turned up with $95,000 in his van but didn't get the opportunity to buy the tapes. Richard shot him in the back of the head and put him in a freezer for 15 months before dumping him. And members of his own crew weren't even safe from his wrath. After an investigation into his gang by the feds, Richard fed Gary Smith a burger laced with cyanide. But when it wasn't working fast enough, he ordered other member Daniel Dapner to strangle him with a lamp cord. And then, a few months later, he killed Daniel Dapner. So, it's just no loyalty. What an um, environment to be in. I know. But... It was his casual approach to killing that was to be his downfall. Now, New Jersey State Police had been watching the goings-on of the various mobs of New Jersey for years. But as these things sometimes go, some detectives were dirty cops and were in on the action. So it was tricky to get anything done. That was until Detective Pat Kane arrived at the case. He had his suspicions about Richard for a while he got his chance to take the prolific killer down when an informant helped connect Pat to a gang who were robbing homes and businesses across the state. So finally, Pat could start to build a file on him and luckily for the detective, Richard was linked to the disappearance of Gary Smith, George Miliband, Daniel Deppner, Louis Masgay and Paul Hoffman. In all the investigations into these missing persons case, there was one thing in common that Richard had been the last person to see them alive. I would say that's a pretty strong piece of evidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know where... Yeah, I saw them, but... I don't know, just, just, just drive off, didn't they? Like, just can't... It's like the shaggy song, isn't it? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. But I saw you, saw you on the counter. No, it wasn't me. <laughs> what was it? Saw you with Gary. It, it wasn't, wasn't me. me. Saw you with George. Wasn't me. Yeah, you get uh, it. that one was me. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but the evidence was circumstantial, and they needed something concrete. So a joint task force was formed between the New Jersey Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Pat got his best man on the case. Special Agent Dominic Polifroni was chosen to go undercover to infiltrate the crime racket and ended up spending 18 months 
pretending to be a mafia-connected criminal called Dominic Provenzano. I think that is glamorous, going undercover. Probably one of the scariest jobs Oh my God, ever. I was literally just thinking that that must be so <laughs> stressful. Just what a high-stress job. Yeah, just trying to be convincing in such a dangerous environment. Yeah, and like in that role, if they ask you to do something illegal or something terrible, do you have to do it? I don't like, know. Should you do it? Like if you do it, do you get in trouble? Because you know you would be like, do this line of coke. No, kill this person. Oh no, like, you're a cop, <laughs> isn't it? Maybe you get like a hall pass. Yeah, you must do. I don't know, but then like, what's to stop the undercover psychopaths just being like, "Oh, they made me do it." <laughs> exactly. I don't know. That's something to look into because it's it? quite interesting. Yeah, isn't I'm it? interested in it. Thanks to a longtime friend of Richards who had turned on him, Special Agent Dominic managed to get close enough to buy a handgun muffler combination from Richard himself. So during the meet, Richard was recorded bragging about a corpse he had been keeping in a freezer for two and a half years. He also told Dominic about all of his favourite ways of killing a person, saying he loved the poison method. And he said, why be messy? You do it nice and calm. Just on the, just chatting to him, like you could. Like he's only there to buy a gun. Yeah, like he's just chatting away. Yeah, I've got a guy in freezer, poison's great as well. <laughs> it's just, how's that weather been? I like poison. <laughs> and it's just such a. You can hear it on this recording. This conversation is so like any conversation that we would have. That's mundane. He's just talking about. So like we talk about cranes. Yeah, he's, yeah. He talks about poison or like how we would talk about condiments oh yeah i know i really like the the ke- i like putting ketchup on my nuggets not by the side of them because it's just you know like it just that kind of conversation he's like no i actually prefer poison because it's just less messy weird isn't it yeah well so with dominic's pretend connections richard asked if the undercover special agent could source him any cyanide and dominic agreed so now that they were buddies dominic asked richard if he would kill someone for him, a wealthy cocaine dealer, and Richard immediately accepted. And this is all being recorded. On the 17th of December, 1986, Richard met undercover agent Dominic to pick up the cyanide he'd ordered from, for, the, for a planned murder. And after Richard picked up the poison, he went for a walk. And on the way, he decided to test how powerful the cyanide was. So he laced a burger with the poison and he lured a stray dog to eat it. But the dog lived. It lived. Oh. It's suspicious. Richard was like, it's giving me fake cyanide. What the fuck? Yeah. Detectives, though, they'd finally had enough evidence to pounce. So just two hours later, Richard and his wife Barbara were waiting at a roadblock when their car was stormed by police and Richard was arrested. Yeah. Yeah. And this detail is a testament on how much Barbara believed his lies. Barbara was also arrested for disorderly conduct for trying to stop the police arresting him, but she genuinely thought they had the wrong man. Oh, bless her. I know. Richard Kuklinski was charged with five accounts of murder, one count of attempted murder, six counts of weapons, violations, robbery and attempted robbery, At the time of his arrest, Richard was found to have a huge amount of money in Swiss bank accounts and a reservation to Switzerland. He was always planning his escape. And he wasn't going to go down without a fight. After his arrest, Richard told reporters, this is unwarranted 
unnecessary. These guys watched too many movies and his lawyers argued that Richard had no history of violence and only ever projected a tough image. But luckily, the jurors were not convinced and on March 1988, he was found guilty of murdering Gary Smith and Daniel Deppner. He was sentenced to a minimum 60 years in prison. After the trial, he then pled guilty to Louis Masgay, David Maliband and Paul Hoffman. He was already in prison, so why not talk about it? During his time in prison, Richard did so many interviews. He gave interviews to psychiatrists, documentary makers, prosecutors, criminologists and writers, and most notably filmed free televised documentaries known as the Iceman Tapes for HBO. That's what you can watch on. Oh, thingy. Yeah. oh interesting. That's on there. So he, like, he's proud of what he's yeah, done, isn't no, he? He, literally, he, wants to share, he wants to share it. He starts by saying, I'm already in prison. What have I got to lose? I might as well just tell you what I did. He's not going. He's not getting out of prison. And it's not like, I guess he can't be charged for all the rest of the murders because they don't know who they are. these people are nah. not, and there's no trace of them anymore. But he's also, he knows that he's not getting out anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what he says because he's, he's there. It's just there. So he might as well just be honest. So um, so definitely look it up when you get home. Oh, yeah, I will. It's so cool. I mean, it's so cool. It's interesting. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Yeah. I just, because the, like this, this type of person is so different from other types of people that we've covered before. Yeah. Like he's, he's, it's, just, oh, this is very, he's a very interesting guy. Terrifying guy. Yeah. And like horrific, all the things that he's done. But like, but just so how interesting. He just, he just talks like a regular guy, but he's a bit, he is like, he has his attitude. It's a bit arrogant. Just don't care. It's mad. It's just so such a disconnection, and because yeah. all you want to know is just the, the why, the, why, why, why. But there's no explanation because they don't have the empathy that we do. And you got it's, it's almost like you're always to. searching yeah. and pining for something that doesn't exist. There's no explanation, and they don't have one because they don't have that like moral baseline that we do as people that aren't serial killers. But we'll end on this during one of the documentaries. Richard asks the psychiatrist interviewing him, what do you think about me? Anything good, bad or indifferent? And the psychiatrist goes on to tell him that his genes and his upbringing have given him two personality disorders, antisocial personality disorder and paranoid personality disorder, something that would only affect less than 1% of the population. During the detailed explanation, for the first time, the Iceman melts just a tiniest bit and says well I'm the loneliest man in the world and he remained that way he rotted away in prison his estranged wife signed a do not resuscitate order and finally aged 70 years old on the 5th of March Richard Kuklinski (laughs) Richard Kuklinski (laughs) Richard Kuklinski apologies died of cardiac arrest wow He has since been linked to 200 murders in both America and all over the world. And those are the cases that we know about. And that was the story of the Iceman. That really was wild. I know know, that's that's the like key phrase for the series. That was wild. I know I say it all the time, but bloody hell. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're looking into the murderous piratess hell-bent on revenge, Jean de Clisson. 
subscribe or follow to make sure that you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks go to our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios.